Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm an alcoholic. Can you guys hear me? Jess, can you hear me back there? Yeah. Okay, cool. Hey, so um, let's see. My sobriety date is uh, February 7th, um, 2006. Uh, My home group is in San Jose, Costa Rica, and I move around a lot. Uh, So I've had sobriety experiences from Chile up through the Americas, out through Asia. And um, I guess two things are in common. and one is the, the illness, um, the alcoholism, the addiction. I really don't see much of a difference. It's just one form or the other. But uh, I belong, belong to multiple uh, 12-step groups. And, um, oh, I've got a lot of work to do. Um, and the other part that's, that's in common is the 12 steps, the recovery, the program of recovery. And... What we have in common, unfortunately, is that it's a program that's available to all of us, and we get guides to walk us through it, to teach us, to help us get better. But sadly, throughout the world, we don't work them. They're the spiritual toolkits that are laid at our feet, and we say, yeah, but mm, not right now. (laughs) So let me reel it back just a little bit, and and for me when it gets to about seven minutes. Um, So... You know, I uh, I enjoyed doing drugs. I enjoyed drinking. I enjoyed disconnecting from reality. You know, that that's the way that I rolled. I haven't been back in this area. In fact, I never knew this area sober, and that was a long time ago. And uh, it's interesting because I just love to get disconnected because, I, you know, as time went on, it's a progressive disease, right? And for anybody who's just coming in for the first time, you'll hear it from other people. They'll go back out, and it gets pretty bad. Right, and what happens is, at first it was partying, you know, having a good time. I was here during the Montana uh, era, and it was we had great times, great parties. But it's a progressive disease, and I just, you know, I kept dancing long after the music stopped, you know, and I just kept trying to start started back up, you know, singing in my head. But it's a progressive disease in which took me to places that I didn't want to be. I couldn't get that joy of partying anymore. And the thing was, it wasn't so much the joy of partying, it was the joy of disconnecting. The joy of disconnecting from, from the present moment, from reality. And, um, and I always sought that, and through many different forms. It doesn't have to be a substance, it doesn't have to be alcohol, it doesn't have to be drugs. It can be sex, it can be exercise, it can be work, it can be scones, whoever brought that in there. Um, but... Um, but it could be anything that gives you pleasure. And, and of course, because I'm obsessive, you give me anything that gives you pleasure. And, hey, I want more, lots more. And how much more? I don't know. I, I always thought there would be a, an amount when, you know, I would finally say, yes, I got enough. Now, even when, when I went way over the limit, all I can think of is, yeah, I want to do some more of that. So... But, you know, what I found was that that gave me a psychic change. It, it gave me a psychic change because I changed from the way that I was feeling to something that I was feeling all right. Even though I might have been feeling shitty or disconnected, um, all of a sudden I, fe- I felt part of life. 
And I always thought that. I always thought that to disconnect, but at the same time be part of life, because I always felt apart from rather than being a part of. And and all kind, all those things, work, alcohol, drugs, sex, everything gave, made me feel a part of. But over time, it's a progressive disease. And over time, I couldn't, I couldn't get that anymore. And it was very disappointing when I couldn't get wasted anymore because it just stopped working. And I needed that psychic change. I just, I needed to have that feeling of being okay. I needed to, to, to you know, to feel as, as part of being a room and feel part of being here instead of wanting to be somewhere else. Because you could invite me to a party and I'd show up to the party maybe, but then I'd leave outside, go get wasted or something, and then just take off. And people say, where'd you go? And that, and that just got worse over time. To the point I just said, why even go? I just might as well get wasted alone. And it became very lonely. Very, not, not lonely in the sense of being alone. I just always sought that, that isolation. <laughs> and I loved it. Um, but, you know, I found that in the doctor's opinion that we needed that psychic change. You know, we needed, we needed something to make us feel like a part of. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really foolish, I mean, and, and arrogant in my part, that I always felt that no way saying I have to understand things and if I understand things then I can correlate them in a way that I can understand and accept them because then they're acceptable to me if I can reason it out. Life is completely harmonious, completely joyous, and everything is at my disposal at this particular moment. Now look at observe what your thoughts are. Your thoughts may be somewhere else, but at this particular moment we have everything we need to exist. And the same is true in every single moment. But how often do you spend time in this moment? And how much do you t spend time in the past or in the future? Thinking about what happened, what are you going to do, what's going to happen? Change is the only constant that we have in this, in this universe. But we want things to remain the same. <laughs> and in this head, things don't ever stay the same. They just keep growing and growing, 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 growing. I had to stop my brain on a daily basis to try to be focused in the here and the now. And when I'm here in the now, all that noise stops. It stops swirling around my head, all the, all the possible scenarios, equations, uh, possibilities of what life could be. Right now, I'm in the process of, of, of moving out of the area again. I'm going to go back to Costa Rica, and I'm not sure where I'll end up again. Now, one could say, wow, what a life. But I'm always seeking something. I'm not sure what. But I never know what's going to happen. Does anybody here know what's going to happen tomorrow? No. Or the next moment? We never know what's going to happen, yet we have this illusion that we think that we know what is going to happen. Oh, I have five minutes left? Oh, cool. Yeah. I could talk and talk and talk. I, I, I don't do drug drunkologues because I've got too many of those. Um, I will say something. It seems like it's a younger crowd, so I will say something to this. I used to, I got sober at 45, and I used to say, those poor kids, they didn't know what it was like to get, you know, have all that experience. And I'll tell you this what I learned is for every year that I partied, I had to spend a year unlearning that behavior. And there was a lot of behaviors that I had to unlearn. You know, things that I thought, yeah, I got that done now. The more twisted that my, the more, uh, the more that my, my addiction, my alcoholism, my distortion of reality uh, progressed, the more that, that, that I, it became disfigured. 
and the more that life seemed like something so different and it's so so simple just live it everything just flows how often do you feel that resistance within you where you just you know it's like you I don't know. I was feeling it on the way over here, strapped into the car. It's like I'm going, you know, focusing there. My my mind narrows, and I'm focusing on where I want to go. I'm focused. I'm concentrated, and it, it's almost like living life, you know, <laughs> on speed um, because I'm just focused, you know, and that's all I can focus. And the thing is that I think I got the control. I got control of life, right? And if I only, if I only, <laughs> if I only, uh, uh, I. I believe that I can rest satisfaction and happiness from this life if only I manage well. If I control all those reins, right, and have everything under control, then I could do well, right? Then everything will be fine. Then this will happen, that will happen, this will happen. And when all these things happen, they'll all align to provide me that perfect happiness that I know I need. That perfect storm, that perfect high, right, that I sobbed so long and for so many nights. Oops, passed it. Oh, go. Got to take some of this, some of that. Always chasing after that. But I find that. I find that in, in reality today. I find the perfect peace, the perfect harmony by being present in today. You know, I didn't know what I wanted. I thought I did. I, I, I suffered from the delusion that I knew what I needed for to be happy. I don't. In the third step, you know, I turn my will and my life over to something, a power greater than myself, whatever it is. Because I did all those things I thought I wanted. <laughs> it got me here. Okay. And the more that I turn things over, the more that, that I say, I don't know what's going to happen. The more that I accept that everything is fundamentally well. The more that I feel the serenity of the flow of life and align to it. The easier my life gets. Oh, no, but I have a sick thought. When everything is going smooth and I'm in the middle of the river, floating down harmoniously down in life, taking this wondrous, joyous trip, I look to the side and say, like, I want to go over there. You know, so I roll to the side of the, the river where I get scratched up on branches and rocks and stuff, and I get beat up again, and, I say, and then I let go again and get back to center and align myself with that flow. But that's okay. I understand I'm sick. I'm never going to get better. Okay. Obviously, I'm never going to get cured. I am. I can't get better. This disease can be arrested. But it gets arrested by coming to meetings, by listening actively as to, as to what's being said. Not so much from me, because my words really don't mean anything unless they get to, down to you. Unless that message gets to you. I'm just the channel of whatever it is you're going to receive. The other part is surrender. You know, surrender to the fact that we didn't we didn't know what to do with our lives. But maybe if we let things flow, if we get guidance from a sponsor, from God, from a power greater than ourselves, from something other than this, then we have a chance. We have a chance to enjoy what many have enjoyed, a life beyond their wildest dreams. Now, you may not think that it works for you, that that may work for somebody else. But if you look at the millions of people that this is worked for, it's got to have some, some validity. Because it's not just here in Berkeley. It's not here in the Bay Area. It's throughout the U.S. It's throughout the U.S., throughout the world. And one great thing about it, I'll finish with this. This program and these programs, whether it's AA, NA, Al-Anon, Nakoda, uh, they exist throughout the world. And you can go anywhere 
and get this type of support, this type of acceptance that you receive here. And that's a beautiful thing because in the past, I don't know too many people wanted me to be part of much of anything. But now I can go anywhere and have that security that I can go and when things get rough, I just go to a meeting. Of course, I always go to meetings, but whenever things get tough, I can go to two or three meetings. And I can always get support from people who understand me unlike anybody else because they understand how we think. They understand that sometimes we're not quite there. And like they said, we're all here because, well, we're not all there. Okay? So keep coming back, surrender, and know that things will be well as long as you let them be. My name is Roby Safir. I'm an alcoholic. All right. It's really good to be here. Um, there were a lot of drivers who were driving really slow in the fast lane. <laughs> it was really fun. And I wasn't driving, so it was even more fun to be a passenger. Anyway, um, I want to welcome the newcomers. I want to welcome anyone who's celebrating. I don't think you asked, but I, I want to welcome anyone who's celebrating. I want to thank Tammy for asking me to speak and Michelle and Samantha for sort of making that happen, I think. And um, it's great to be here. You know, my life is about speaking in church basements on a Saturday night. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Um, so so it's, it, it's been an experience. It's been an experience. And if anyone ever told me that, that the highlight of my life would be speaking in church spaces any day or night of the week at any point. And that not only that it was the highlight, but that I would like live for it. I would tell them they were effing crazy. I cannot promise I won't curse them from Jersey, even though I live in California. So I just can't promise, but I can promise I will do my best. Um, so my sobriety date is January 1st, 1986. And for that, I am extremely grateful um, shocked, humbled in a way that, um, only people who have a sobriety date know because that sobriety date is really important to me. My birthday is May 19th, 1964. I only like to say that because I don't look my age. Um, but the, the other thing about that is, is that day, that day won't change and there's no guarantee even 34 years later, that January 1st, 1986 won't change. So I will own that day, and I will be grateful every minute of my existence that that was the day that, despite my best plans, I was separated from alcohol, drugs, in my case, active bulimia, and a ton of other things, a ton of other things, um, that I didn't even know were a problem. And I was 21 years old, and... Um, you know, and I, I have people now in my life who say to me, do you think maybe it was just a phase? <laughs> maybe it was. Okay, let's go with that. Maybe it was. But it's not a phase I want to test. Because that phase took me to going home with people I didn't know on subways in New York in the 80s. To waking up in places, doing things, saying things, not remembering things that 
likely I would repeat because like what Alex talked about, it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter for me if it was drugs, if it was alcohol, if it was food, it was sticking my fingers down my throat. If it was more sex, it was less sex. It was whatever. It was attention. It did not matter what it was. The only thing I wanted was more. And it was more of whatever it was that would get me out of feeling anything because feeling anything was so uncomfortable because I was so incredibly uncomfortable in my own skin. So the most important thing that I feel that I want to give tonight is that you can identify with some of the feelings because probably the exact details on my story, you're not going to go, Oh my God, she told my story because it's not going to happen. You know, cause most of us don't, you know? And when I tell my story, I I've been sober for so much longer than I used. And that just means I've had longer to be crazy sober, you know? <laughs> right? I mean, like, you, you get in. I have, I, I, I'm going to talk for a minute about today. I'm going to talk a little bit about yesterday. I'm going to talk for a minute about today. Um, I have the, this opportunity where I sponsor a lot of people. And let me tell you exactly what that means, because I think sponsorship is really important. And it talks about on page 89. It says that practical experience shows us that nothing ensures immunity against alcoholism as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other things fail. You know, immunity from drinking is intense work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. Other activities means anything else, even though all those other activities are really important because I think every single activity that set up this meeting from Sonny who said hello to me to Tammy who called me to Dee who was here to the people who set up to the coffee, those are really important because we wouldn't be here without them. But like even more important is if I sit with somebody and read the big book after because I won't drink them. I certainly hope you won't, but I won't, you know. Nothing. I'm one of those people who kind of drinks the Kool-Aid, so I've drank the Kool-Aid about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, like big time. I, I was 21 years old when I came to the rooms. I had so no idea of how to live that if you told me to stand naked on my head in the corner with carrots coming out of my ears, I would have done it. There's nothing I would have done. Now, the good thing that I've learned about sponsorship, both by having sponsors and being a sponsor, is that if someone tells you to do that, you really shouldn't. You know, you should run. You know, the only thing that a sponsor has a right to tell you to do is the knowledge of how to work the steps out of their big book. I give directions. I don't give suggestions. I have no idea what someone should do in their life. And I can share my experience. That's it. Like, that's it. I really frustrate the people I sponsor when they call me up and say, what should I do? I have no fucking idea <laughs> what you should do. Did you pray? Did you write a 10 step? Did you call somebody else and ask them how they were? You know? Like, those are the things. But, like, I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't know this in the beginning. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened to me today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like. I have 40 minutes, which is really nice. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the big book. Don't have a plan as to what I'm going to say. I'm just going to say whatever it is that, you know, God, as I understand God, wants to channel through you. Samantha and I went out before the meeting. We got on our knees and we said the third step prayer, you know. And I asked, you know, to be relieved of the bondage of self. But it's really specific. Why? 
I mean, I could be relieved of the bondage yourself so you can hear how amazing I am, how cute I am, how wonderful I am, what an inspiration I am. Because <laughs> people tell me a lot that I am an inspiration, which really cracks me up because, you know, there are a few people in this room who have seen me on FaceTime and at home with my hair in a ponytail, no makeup, kissing my cats. Um, you know, so, you know, different, different things inspire different people. But it says in, it says in the third step prayer, relieve me of the bondage of self. Why? So to remove my difficulties. So victory over my difficulties can bear witness to anyone I would help of God's power, God's love, and God's way of life. And here I am in a basement of a church, or I'll just, even if it's not a church, I'll pretend it's a church, but it says fishlets and loaves, so it's a church. <laughs> on, on a Saturday night, right? My first husband was a recovered Catholic. I know a lot about it. <laughs> so, you know, so today, today I... I, I slept till noon because I worked last night, and I want to tell you about the, the people I spoke to on the phone today between noon and 6.45 when I left Sunnyvale to come here. Um, I spoke to my friend Kate, who lives in the north of England. I happen to be her big book sponsor, which means that I'm just basically her big book guide, and we're friends, who's going through a brutal divorce from her husband who has never been able to stop using meth and was high on their wedding day and she didn't know and um, recently made amends to him and is able to walk out of that marriage now and be free. I spoke to my sister who's visiting her 95-year-old mother-in-law in Paris who is afflicted by this disease in the forms of other substances and in the forms of intense codependency. I spoke with my mother who has a little over 20 years of recovery, who is still afflicted with this disease, who is the primary health care giver for my father, who is on dialysis and has end-stage Alzheimer's. Um, I spoke with my friend Chris, who I met through having the opportunity to go into Soledad Prison on a regular basis to bring big book workshops and big book meetings to the lifers there. So some of those guys, the lifers have become my best friends. And Chris was one of the guys who got out a couple of years ago because of the new laws. And Chris called me up to ask me to speak for him sometime, some, some, I don't know. He asked me to speak for him in April and he is currently in some program for firefighters or something for the parks in California, this is a guy who was incarcerated for over 20 years of his life. He's in his early 40s, who is just rocking this life because of being sober and the principles and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I spoke with my friend Emma, who um, sobriety date is January 3rd, 2020, who has been struggling with heroin and meth and alcoholism addiction for over 10 years and coming to the rooms. She lives in England also and lying about it. And um, I get to sponsor her, too, which just means that we get to be friends and I get to give her directions for how to work the steps exactly as they're laid out in the big book. And I get to step back and witness her miracle. This was what my day was like. And then I got ready and I hugged and kissed my cats. Um, and it was amazing. And it was amazing. And every single one of those conversations was meaningful. And I know every, I spoke to, I also spoke to Sam and Michelle, actually. I didn't forget about you guys. I also spoke to Sam and Michelle. I speak to them almost every day. Um, and I, I just get to have amazing 
people in my life. I sponsor people. I sponsor men. I sponsor women. I sponsor people. I sponsor anyone who wants help. Because this is what I have learned is that if you want help, it doesn't matter what you can do. Anything you do will help them. But if someone doesn't want help, it doesn't matter what you do. Nothing will help them. Nothing. When I tripped into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1985, I had no idea that I was sick. I had no idea that I had a disease. I had no idea that I had an ism. I had no idea about anything. All I knew was that I couldn't live and I wanted to die. I was living in New Jersey. I was working in New York. Um, I worked at a restaurant. I worked at a Greek restaurant. I always talk about that because I still work at a Greek restaurant. I have another job too, but I still work at a Greek restaurant, so I think it's a thing. Um, and I... Um, Kind of like what Alex talked about. I knew how to wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this life if only I managed well, but I wasn't managing well. I wasn't managing at all, you know. To backtrack really quickly, I'm a first-generation American. My family survived or escaped the Holocaust. I grew up with um, a lot of stories. I grew up with a lot of um, trauma. I grew up with a lot of drama. There's still a lot of drama in my family. I grew up with a lot of people who had numbers on their arms. Um, I grew up hearing stories about that. So when things happened to me as a child that were traumatic, and I'll talk about them, it's not anything that I don't talk about. I didn't think they were such a big deal because I grew up hearing stories about the camps. And there's two things that happen in, in families where you've survived um, that, that come from, you know, situations like that. In my family had to be the Holocaust, but there's all sorts of Holocaust in all sorts of cultures. Either they talk about it or they don't. That's what happens in these families, just like in families with alcoholism. Either you talk about it or you don't. So in my family, we just talked about it. <laughs> you know, we were just bleeding hearts. So, you know, we talked about it so much that, it, that I found it really hard to talk about, like, like anything. Um, this is the kind of child I was. At the age of 12, I read a book. By a man named, I wrote, read a book by a man named Hugh Prather, which was called Notes to Myself, My Struggle to Become a Person. I was 12. <laughs> I was 12. Notes to myself. I, I'm glad somebody knows the book, but I mean, and I got to tell you, you know, um, amazing book, you know, amazing book. Um, and I think I'm, I sure still have it. It came out in 1976 and, um, it's not. It's not in print anymore. But that's that's the kind of, like, mind I had, you know? That's the kind of mind I had. I was very dramatic. Um, I, I like to make up stories. I like to make up personas. My favorite thing when I was drinking was to go to bars and make up a name and accent. Um, I'm multilingual, so I can speak another language. You know, make up a story, tell a whole story about myself. Um, Bars were the thing that I used to cry and have somebody save me. And I will tell you that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I spent five years crying, hoping somebody would save me. Um, so if you expect to come in and feel great and get it all together in the first three months, good luck. Um, it won't happen. I'm still working on it. It's 34 years. But, you know, I... Um, I was reading that book. My active drinking started when I was 12, and it progressed um, pretty much for nine years. And I spent nine years either slightly buzzed or incredibly high every single day. There was not one day that I wasn't one of those things. You know, I was young. I was smart. I was charming. I was manipulative, and I was able to get away with a whole bunch of stuff. I also was incredibly uncomfortable. I was incredibly miserable. I was incredibly depressed. 
and I had no idea how to live, how to communicate, or how to function. And my parents had no idea how to show me how to do any of those things. And that is simply the truth. And I took a lot of years of fourth steps and 10 steps and ninth steps and conversations to just recognize what the truth was, not blame them and take responsibility for my life as an adult. You know, a lot of years, a lot of years. And when I finally did, five years later, my mother asked me for help and I 12 stopped her and she's not perfect and she doesn't have a perfect program. And I'm really concerned about her right now, but I experienced a moment of humility when she asked me for help, like nothing I've ever experienced before. I was 13 and a half years sober. I was living in Europe. I was visiting her. Is it 10 or 20? 20. Okay. I was, I was visiting them and she turns around to me and she said, I can't do this my way anymore. Can you tell me what you do? Okay. Can, um, can you tell me what to do? Because, um, thank you. Wait, I'll fix it. Because my way's not working. You know, I'm making, I'm embarrassing Michelle. Um, (laughs) sometimes when you sponsor people, it's like having grandchildren. Like, don't do that. (laughs) Anyway. And, and that was, that was really amazing. That was really amazing to me. Um, Anyway, I was working in a restaurant. I, I drank every day. I drugged as often as possible. Cocaine was my drug of choice. Vodka was my drink of choice. And I ate whatever I could that would throw up, that would vomit up easily. And that basically was my addiction. And it just kind of rolled around and around and around. I was able to sustain friendships. I know that because I have, um, I have friends that I've been friends with for over 40 years. I have friends in my life from when I was 10 years old. We're still friends. I recently visited my family and spent um, an evening with my very best friend from the first day of high school, which is an over 40-year friendship. I spoke this morning to my college roommate, and we've been friends since 1982 or whatever it was the year that we started college. You know, So, So it's not that I or you or any of us come in here as inherently piece of shit people with nothing to offer. But we come in here thinking that we have nothing to offer. We come in thinking and feeling defeated, and we are, and we are. The first line of the forward to the first edition says that we are people who have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. I recently was listening to a book, a psychology book, and it was talking about the difference between alcoholics and addicts and people who aren't people who aren't can have a drink or maybe even recreational Coke, though. I don't know if there's such a thing, (laughs) Uh, but let's pretend, you know, or a recreational piece of cake. They can do that stuff and they, they do it to feel better and enhance the situation that they're in. But alcoholics and addicts, what we do, what I do is I do anything I can to keep me as far as possible from being in the moment and from, from connecting with myself because I just can't bear it. It's just that terrible. You know, it's just that terrible. And it talks about when we come into, you know, I I think it's in more about alcoholism. I'm going to get it wrong, but it says, you know, when we come into NAA crushed by a self-imposed crisis, that it's, I think this is, there, there is a solution that we can neither avoid or evade. There was but one choice. 
you know, there's what, what one choice to pick up the spiritual kit of tools laid at our feet. You know, there was no other choice. What is a self-imposed crisis? You know, every one of us knows the thing that got us here, the absolute thing that got us here, where it was no longer anyone else's fault. You know, even if that lasts only for a few minutes and you come in and after a few days, I'm sober a week and I got this and, you know, like my dysfunctional family and my this and my that. And, and if they just, you know, I mean, all that stuff and my family is dysfunctional. So, um, except for it doesn't use that word in the big book. In the big book, it says members of a resentful family. And I think that that's really, really interesting and a really good kind of um, denominator, you know, because when I talk to my family and I hear them talk from a point of resentments, I can talk back to them from a point of the solution. Because in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, remember I drank the Kool-Aid, I believe everything is written in this book, it says we master resentments. We master resentments. You know, I don't know what's functional or not functional, but I know when I'm resentful. You know, so you come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and, it, and you're going to feel better physically and you might start to think clearly. And then they tell you, you have to find a spiritual solution, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> you know, most of us come in hating God. I didn't come in hating God. I come from a very religious family. I just didn't believe in God. And even more importantly, and this is really important. I knew that God didn't believe in me. I knew God didn't believe in me. But someone told me early on, and I don't remember who it was, but I can kind of see their face at a meeting that I used to go to in Piscataway, New Jersey, at a place called Friendship Hall. Someone said to me, if you pray and there's no God, you don't lose. If you pray and there is a God, it's even better. If you don't pray and there is no God, you still don't lose. But if you don't pray and there's a God, you're fucked. <laughs> you know? And um, so I just decided to do it anyway. I did it anyway for a really long time. You know? Some people say fake it till you make it, but I wasn't faking it. I was really doing it. I was really, really, really doing it. And things began to happen. I will tell you that my first seven years of recovery were run on a lot of self-will and a lot of poor direction. If there's one thing that I can wish for every single person in this room, it's good direction. It's good sponsorship. And I will tell you exactly what good sponsorship is. It's not rocket science. It's going through the steps as the laid out in the big book, and it's being willing to listen. A sponsor is a guide and a witness, not a guide, not a nurse, not a doctor, not a healthcare center, not a therapist, not a bank, not whatever. <laughs> My phone's better. It's a male Australian accent. Um, you know, but, you know, and that's it. I wish that on you, you know. I don't know anything about what anyone should do in their life. But I know that by the time I got to almost seven years sober and I was in the middle of my first marriage and it wasn't going really well um, and I, we were separated and I walked into a meeting of um, 
a big book step meeting in Boston because I had then moved from New York. I was, so let me just give you the pattern. New York, New Jersey, Boston. And then from Boston, it went to, I worked on cruise ships for 10 years, traveled all over the Caribbean, lived all over Europe, landed in Greece for a very long time, went to Israel, which I'm a citizen of, and then kind of circled back to the Bay Area. Not back because I'd never been here, but moved to the Bay Area in 2004. And I've been here for 16 years. And I'm kind of thinking about, actually, I'm actively pursuing moving back to the East Coast um, in the spring towards the, I'm sorry, in the fall, September, October, towards the end of 2020, Um, which is amazing that I even have that choice, that I have that opportunity, that I can even think that I want to do that. Um, But anyway, so I walk into this meeting and there's this man who has since passed away, but was very important to me in my recovery. His name was Jack the Marine. I don't remember his last name, but we called him Jack the Marine. Um, and he was a Marine and he was sitting in front and he was talking about the fourth step as it was laid out in the big book and he was talking about resentments. And the only thing I remember him saying was, have you made amends to your mother? And I was like, oh my God, you know, this man is scary. This was 1992. Um, I think at that particular time I wasn't talking to my mother, um, let alone making amends to her or my father or anyone because they had wronged me. And, um, whatever wrongs they did or didn't do to me, when I was able to just look at the wrongs that I did to them and other people, I was able to get better. So anyway, um, my experience is that I drank, I drugged, I scored with people in the Port Authority in New York City. I was involved in a lot of drug deals with a lot of crazy people. My story is very sexual. I used my body to get drugs. I used my body to get ahead. I used my body for whatever it was that I could get. I was sexually abused as a child. I was raped at 15. None of that is why I'm an alcoholic. These are things that happened to me. Why do I talk about them? Because if I don't talk about them, you're not going to know that you could talk about them in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why. That's why. Because you have to be able to say this stuff happened to me. I healed. I, I got outside help. I worked the steps. And I am somebody who can help somebody who that's, who's gone through that. That's why it's important. You know? Really, really important. There are things that haven't happened to me. But because people talk about stuff that's happened to them in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, there are a lot of people that we can go for, for guidance and support. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Because I have a friend. I was I was in New York and I got home last Friday and on my layover I got a text message on a friend's mind who kills himself with fourteen years of sobriety. I'm talking too fast. He killed himself with fourteen years of sobriety. And on the way over here I got a text from a guy who's sponsored who can't stop drinking and who can't reconcile what happened. And my friend Peter was depressed and full of despair and hopelessness, according to a text I got from someone else this week, and nobody knew because he didn't talk about it. Talk about it, guys. Talk about it. Talk about it, and then do the three things that are my mantra. Breathe, pray, and help someone else. And then talk about it some more. And then breathe, pray, and help somebody else. Because there's something that happens when I talk to someone else about what's going on with them that makes what's going on with me a whole hell of a lot smaller. My sponsor today says two things. He says, today is a good day to have a good day. And thank God for the seemingly terrible. You know? Because it only seems terrible. It's not terrible. Even when it's terrible, it's not terrible. Think about it. You know? Think about it. Are you sober? Are your bills paid? Do you have a car? Do you have food? Do you have a place to crash if you don't have, you know? All these things. All these things. And then you build from there. And then you build from there. Because my life is full of such luxury problems. It's not even funny. Problems I didn't even know existed because I wasn't going to live to be 55. 
I was going to barely live to be 25 and I was going to go out in a cloud of glory because that was, that was all I could focus on. It was way, way, way too painful, way, way, way too uncomfortable. And it didn't get comfortable right away. And I, I keep saying that. Why do I keep saying that? Because I, I mean, I have people who will call me up and they'll be like, well, it's been a month. Why don't I feel better? <laughs> you know, I don't always feel good. I don't always feel good today. I don't always feel good. The best thing I can give you is that most of the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm winging it and praying through it. I don't know. I have no reference for how to live life. I really, really don't. And then the flip side of it is I have an incredible reference for how to live life. An incredible reference. I've had incredible people come into my life. I have incredible mentors. I have incredible guides, including people in my own family who became a whole hell of a lot better than I thought that they were. Not only when I was drinking and using, but when I first got clean and sober and was kind of like getting over myself and getting over who I thought I was. So I'm going to tell you really, really simply, I spent my first real fourth step. I had seven years sober. I wrote for six months. I don't suggest it, but that's what I did. I wrote for six months. I wrote every single resentment against every single person. I wrote every single thing it affected. I wrote for every single person where I was selfish, where I was dishonest, where I was self-seeking, and where I was afraid. And then I took every single one of those fears, and I answered all of the questions. Why do I have this fear? You know, how does self-reliance fail me? What does it make me do? What should I have done instead? God, please remove my fear of whatever. I still use that prayer every day because most of the time I am really afraid. I have suffered from terrible anxiety sober. God, please remove my fear of getting out of bed and going to work today because it is really hard and I'm 50-something years old and direct your attention to what you would have me be. What would you have me be? Patient, kind, loving, maybe shut up, you know? Maybe ask someone else how they are. Maybe just be quiet. Maybe just be understanding. Maybe just be compassionate. Direct your attention to what you have me be. I did a sex inventory. I've had so many sex ideals because who I was at 21 and 25 and 30 and who I am at 55, almost 56 is not the same. You know, I've been, I was married for 20 years, um, all sober, not to the same person. Um, and I've had incredible experiences with all three of those things. And that means that I'm really good at, at relationships because I know a lot about them. You know, I know a lot about them. My first husband um, is now one of my best friends ever. My third husband, if I never see him again, that's great. I think we both agree on that. But we left it clean. I was only married to him for two years. My second husband came back into my life after we'd been divorced for a while. I became his primary caregiver, and he unexpectedly passed away three and a half years ago. And if you had heard me speaking three and a half years ago, I wouldn't have been able to talk without crying. And there are people in this room who remember that, you know. And that was the greatest lesson of my life because I, I was hit with, I am not going to miss this moment. I'm not going to miss this moment. There's way too much to talk about with that than I have time for or that it's necessary here. But I want to tell you that it, it allowed me to, and I always was kind of like this, but like I say, I love you to every single person that I care about whenever I hang up the phone, because I know it could just be the last time, you know, doesn't mean I'm prepared. It just means I know. And I want to tell you what got me through that time, which was at that particular time, the hardest thing I ever went through sober was not my sponsors. It was my sponsees, which means special friends. 
because those were the people who were there when I was sitting with his body. Those were the people who were there at the funeral. Those were the people who were there when I couldn't leave my house and they were calling me up and saying, can you meet me at this meeting? Those were the people who were still doing their steps who came to my house and were who were reading me their fifth steps. You know, those were the opportunities that I had. You know, I have, you know, like, you know, like Alex, I've traveled a lot. I've lived in a lot of countries. I've been to meetings in a lot of places. I've spoken in a lot of places. Um, I've experienced Alcoholics Anonymous, the program, the fellowship in a lot of places. The 12 steps don't change. Not everybody works them. This is real, you know. Um, you cannot drink and go to meetings till you're blue in the face, but if you don't do some inner work, good luck, you know. And I mean that with all the love in my heart, good luck, because I did that for almost seven years and I wanted to drink, you know. And it, it didn't take much. I mean, in my first year now, granted, remember I'm from the East Coast, I used to go to work wearing stockings, not like these, but like, you know, like the, the nylons, like what they were in England. And um, if I ripped them, I would call in sick. And like, we let you, you think I'm joking. I'm not. I couldn't function. I wasn't good at it. You know, I wasn't good at it. Today, I'm better at it. I'm better. I'm not great, but I'm better, you know? And, you know, I... I, I just totally lost my chance thought with that one. So anyway, um, but just, just that I, I, I can't advocate enough. I mean, I'm, I've been involved with groups where, um, that, that I haven't necessarily appreciated the way they carry the message, but the message is really important. I've been involved with big book study groups. I've been involved with thumpers, um, thumpers groups. There's a thumper group in the, um, on the peninsula that I was involved with and they do a lot of great things. I'm, I'm not so involved with them, but as a result of being involved with them, I got to go to the prisons. I got to go speak at some conferences that people put on. Um, I've had more exposure to different people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I never would have met, you know, and you know, I just want to say something like if you're home and you're thinking, I really need to stay home and take some time for me and relax and chill. And, um, you know, and I do this, watch a movie on Netflix. Um, I did a couple weeks ago, or I should just like push myself and go to a meeting, push yourself and go to the meeting. There are miracles that happen when you step outside that like invisible line of your door. Miracles that happen when you join the human race. Miracles that happen when you say to someone, hi, how are you? It's an unbelievable thing, you know. It's an unbelievable thing caring about someone else and then caring about someone else more than I care about myself, you know. And that's what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why most of my day was spent talking to other people. Not because I didn't have any other things to do. And I did other things while I was doing it because FaceTime is a beautiful thing. Um but because I've really learned to care about other people, to care about what they're feeling, to care about what they think, to care about what they need, and to just care, you know? And I learned how to care about other people because other people cared about me. I still have a sponsor. I have two. One of them lives in L.A. and one of them lives in New York. I still write. I write 10 steps on a regular basis. And if I wait too long, that 10th step becomes a fourth step. And I don't like that. So I try and just keep it in, keep it in the 10th, you know, on, on a more regular basis. Um, sometimes I do just one part. Sometimes I just do resentment and fear. Sometimes I just do sex inventory. Sometimes I just do fear. 
I do things like I pray and meditate every day. I'm not really great at the meditation, but I have these things like, you know, these 10 minute breathe, pray meditations on my iPad. One, one app is called breathe and one app is called calm. You know, um, I do these things. I still read books like notes to myself, my struggle to become a person, but they've evolved. And now I'm reading about adult attachment theory and pro-dependence and how that relates to codependence. And I get really, really into it all. But then it goes back to like Dr. Bob's last message, which was don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. You know, Dr. Bob said, and it's in the end of his story. There's so many things I could quote the paper until until it comes home. It says, if you think you're an atheist and agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other forms of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, I feel sorry for you. So God forbid we say that to somebody, but Dr. Bob wrote it. So I'm saying to you, if you think that you know that, I do feel sorry for you because I did. And thank God I stayed and learned that, you know, I really didn't. I really didn't know. If you still think you're strong enough to beat the game alone, that's your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking liquor for good and all, not a day at a time, folks, for good and all. And sincerely feel you must have some help. We know we have an answer for you. It never fails. And that's a promise. If you go about it with one half the zeal you have been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. So translated into English, because I needed that translated into English with one half the energy, one half the devotion, one half the dedication. I went to get anything, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, whatever, to get me out of myself. If I just use half of that energy for this, God, as I understand, God will never let me, you, or us down. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.